You're listening to the Fedora Chronicles radio show number 33, and I'm Eric Render King Fisk. This time we talked to Rich Harvey, host of the New Jersey Pulp Adventure Con. We spoke about the events in his life that led him to be a lifelong lover of vintage pulps. We also talk about Dashiell Hammett, anti-heroes like Sam Spade and Miller's Crossing's Tom Riggin. We also discuss some other period films like Road to Perdition and The Godfather. This interview was done in two parts. In between the two parts, I interviewed some other guests of the show, vendors, and uh, someone from the children's literacy group, Mighty Writers. These podcasts will be released at a future date. This edition of the Fedora Chronicles radio show was brought to you by Penman Hats, handcrafted fedoras made right here in the United States. PenmanHats.com We're also brought to you by RetroGoGo, where you can find plenty of items for the retrocentrics and vintage aficionados on your holiday list. Go to RetroGoGo.com Also check out our Zazzle store, Zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Once again, here's my conversation with Laura Charby. I really appreciate you allowing me to do this for the Fedora Chronicles radio show. And uh, could you just introduce yourself to the uh, to the listeners? Well, let's see. I was born in 68, and I was just a plain old kid. And then uh, I think we were going on a trip to Florida. We had a layover in Georgia. And my father made the mistake of buying me a Batman and a Superman comic to keep me busy. And he was surprised at how well they kept me quiet. So then he bought me a Spider-Man when we were in Florida. And after we got home to Philadelphia, every time we went to 7-Eleven, I was searching for the comic book racks. I knew they were there. And uh, I, I think I got familiar with The Shadow and Doc Savage and the comic books that DC and Marvel published in the 70s. And then they kind of went away. And then in the early 80s, I discovered a copy of The Shadow in a Kmart in their book department. The last one they had marked half price. It was the Romanov Jewels, and I saw this cover by Jim Steranko, the shadow aiming an automatic at an unseen enemy and this beautiful woman holding this big box of jewels and the Kremlin in the background. I thought, oh, boy, i got to have that. And um, I think when I held the book up to my mom, because I didn't have the 60 cents, I said, can I get this? I kind of placed my finger strategically over the damsel's cleavage just so mom wouldn't say, oh, you can't read that. And it was the first, the first time I attempted to read a novel, just straight prose, not comic fiction. I was reading one chapter a day. It took me a month to finish that novel, and I thought I was making great progress. For everybody that I've spoken to, what really hooks them into uh, vintage pulp mm-hmm. or vintage anything at all has always been the cover art. But it's like it's the actual content that actually keeps you hooked in. Well, the interesting thing about the Romanoff Jewels, it was originally published in a December 1932 issue of The Shadow, but the cover artwork didn't really say 1930s to me, and as I was reading the story, until I looked and read the copyright notice, there were a lot of moments where you could imagine it was the present day while you were reading, and uh, so, you know, I got more and more into the vintage stuff, but I didn't know I was getting into the vintage stuff when I was getting into it. I was getting interested more through the authors, the illustrators, and, you know, the stories, and then uh, I was hooked. Then I started seeking out the original pulp magazines, and I went to my first pulp con in 1984. It was in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, not far from where I lived at the time, and 
I was only 16 years old. I got my dad to drop me off, and everyone assumed I was there with someone else. They didn't realize I was the collector. I was basically the youngest person ever at PulpCon. And unfortunately, to this day, I'm still one of the youngest people at the pulp shows because, you know, sometimes it's difficult to get new people interested in this material. Well, actually, no, I think I have you beat by a year because I was born in 69, so... Beat me by a nose. <laughs> beat by a nose. No, actually, we have a gentleman here in the background who's, who's younger. No. 38. 38, see. Okay. But All right, so I don't have the title of being youngest guy anymore. No, but you do have the title of the, uh, the founder and the organizer of this event here in New Jersey. Right. Could you tell us about, about that? Well, for years there had been some talk about having a pulp show on the East Coast, and PulpCon, which was largely held in the Midwest since 1971, they came out to New Jersey three times, once in 1989, once in uh, 1984, which was my first. I missed the one in Cherry Hill, New Jersey in 1981, where Walter Gibson, the creator of The Shadow, was a guest, which was too bad, but... You know, I got to meet uh, Walter Baumhofer, the pulp artist that created the imagery of Doc Savage. I met Jack Schiff, who was an editor for the Pulps and for Batman for many years. And uh, I got to meet a lot of interesting people. And then a guy by the name of Andy Beagle Jr., who used to live in East Brunswick, New Jersey, had little get-togethers for some pulp friends. Then eventually Albert Tonic, another longtime pulp collector, started having them in Pennsylvania. And when he started to grow weary of having them after 10, 15 years, then I sort of picked up the mantle, but I turned it into more of a regular show with dealers displaying and stuff like that. So you have a lot of authors here or just a lot of collectors? Well, there are mostly collectors, but the thing is a number of collectors are authors and illustrators. You know, There seem to be a surprising number of pros that collect pulps and are interested in pulps. I think that's where a lot of them got influenced or that's one of their influences. And I, I think it's good that pulp fiction influences them because, you know, a lot of this material really did start in the pulps. And I I think if you're a young 20-something who's only comic books published in the last five or ten years, I don't think you're being properly influenced. You need to step outside, you know, what some people, I guess, would euphemistically call your comfort zone. And, you know, you need to read Edgar Allan Poe and Sherlock Holmes and stuff like that. You need Dashiell to go back Hammett. further. Dashiell Hammett, my favorite. Yep. Um, now, which is your favorite, the Maltese Falcon or the Thin Man? To be honest with you, the Thin Man was not a bad film. I rewatched it recently, and I don't think I liked it as much as I did the first time. I have tried to finish reading the Thin Man many, many times, and have never finished. What is it about that book that you don't like that much? It just seems to be a lot of hanging out, you know, a lot of boozy banter. I think it, it. someone said it's almost his idealized relationship with Lillian Hellman. And a lot of people, when you say Dashiell Hammett, they immediately start thinking about Lillian Hellman. And no offense meant to her, but I'm interested in Hammett as an author, and I'm interested in his fiction. After he stops writing for the Pulps, and he sold The Thin Man to Red Book. That sold to a slick Yep. before it went hardcover, and I think it's really his weakest story. So I'd have to go Maltese Falcon, but actually I think instead of Maltese Falcon, I actually like Glass Key. That was actually one of Hammett's personal favorites. It's a story about political corruption. Yes. Uh, you know, politicians basically, all hell breaks loose when politicians stop looking the other way and start cracking down on mobsters that have been paying the politicians protection money. It's it's basically a story about ethics. You know, they, Miller's Crossing is an original story, but some people have said you, there are elements of the glass key and Red Harvest spliced yes. in. And 
one of the characters in the beginning of Miller's Crossing is talking about ethics, but that's yes, that's the whole crux of the glass key. These politicians who have been accepting money from mobsters are now cracking down on the mobsters, and the mobsters just want what they paid for. Yep, you know, get off my back. I paid you to get off my back, and the politicians want the money, but they also want you know they want to pay to up. be yeah. recognized as public crusaders because it's an election year. One of the things I found out um, by hosting uh, the Flora Chronicles is that there are so many people who get into vintage um, through different movies. Obviously, you have Raiders right. of the Lost Ark, but a lot of people are coming around and, uh, through Miller's Crossing, which is mm-hmm. like my favorite film when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, uh, there are so many salutes to Dashiell Hammett and other really great movies of the time. And a lot of people say, it's a parody of film noir mm-hmm. and, and the pulp. And yet, other people like myself say, no, it's a tribute. Well, that's interesting because I remember hearing an interview with Gabriel Byrne where he said he thought Miller's Crossing was supposed to be a comedy, but when the Coen brothers started directing it, like that scene where they actually take you know the character Bernie Birnbaum yep. out to Miller's Crossing and he's basically begging for his life, Yeah, some of it is kind of amusing, but I mean it gets pretty intense toward the end because you don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. Exactly. And I'm not going to say it because I don't want to ruin the movie because I know – I have a habit of making a comment, and then someone out there will cry, oh, why'd you ruin it? For everybody who has listen- is listening to the Fedora Chronicles radio show, you have to see Miller's Crossing. I think it's a good, I don't know about introduction, but it's almost a good Dashiell Hammett sampler. It really is. It's, a, it's an original plot that like has a lot of homages to it. And they take a lot of ideas from Hammett, but then put their own spin on it. But, and, uh, and you also have to realize that it's like uh, Sam Spade was one of the first anti-heroes. Yes. He's really not a nice guy. He's no. not the kind of guy that you want your sister taking home to mother. And he really is, in a way, the anti-hero. There are a lot of anti-heroes who, by the end of the film, you're thinking, oh, he's not such a bad guy. But uh, Sam Spade, at the end of the the novel, you're thinking, yeah, he's not such a bad guy, but he's not really a great guy. You know, he, He's not quite as crooked as he pretends to be. He does that to make it easier to deal with the enemy, as he says, and to attract high-priced clients. But he is pretty shady himself. Yeah. You know. Yeah, Tom Reagan. Tom Reagan's a perfect example. It's like towards yes. the end. Just just between you and me, and it's like anybody who is listening to this and hasn't seen Miller's Crossing and don't want it spoiled, just, just turn the volume down for like 30 seconds. Do you think Tom Reagan set it up from the beginning, or do you think that it was just it just worked out the way it worked out because purely by accident and by his own sheer will? I think it, he had it all planned out up until the middle of the film where he takes Bernie Birnbaum out to Miller's Crossing and then it all changes. But he improvised to his benefit. So. Yeah. But, of course, his benefit wound up being to a lot of people's detriment. Yeah. But, you know, he's, he's one of those characters living by his own moral code. Now, of course, we have to talk about Road to Perdition. Okay. Road, Road to Perdition started out as a graphic novel right. and became another one of the great movies that is a tribute to the Warner's gangster films of the 30s and 40s. What made that movie and that story so great? I don't know. I think the, the graphic novel is great because uh, you know, it's almost like a Hope Crosby road trip gone bad. It's this father and son traveling around the country, but of course they've got you know hired assassins coming after them and... You know, Max Allen Collins really knows that time period. I mean, he knows Elliot Ness. In fact, I think he wrote some novels with Elliot Ness as the protagonist. As a matter of fact, he is. And uh, it's it's an interesting subtext to the story about this relationship between this father and son that weren't that close when they kind of bond while they're on the run. Uh, It is something of a coming-of-age story. However, I, I 
I got to beg to differ. I thought Maltese Falcon was a great novel and it was a great movie. I thought Road to Perdition was a great graphic novel and an okay movie. I, I felt kind of like they were trying to take Road to Perdition and almost making it a sort of godfather for the late 1990s. And I just didn't quite go for that. You know, there were too many scenes between Tom Hanks and Paul Newman, who played Mr. Looney. Yep. Uh, where they're playing the piano together. I thought they were, maybe they thought they were fleshing out the characters more. I thought it was padding. I think the original graphic novel is much more fast paced, much more brutal. Yes. And they were almost sort of putting this soft sheen on it with like the slow motion shootouts and, you know, the, the swell of music in the background. If I had been directing that, it might have been a little bloodier and there wouldn't have been any, you know, uh, harpsichord music in the background. Yeah. These guys were, bloodthirsty well not so much the lead character that hanks played but the criminals around him are pretty much bloodthirsty they've got an agenda they're doing what they're doing for money you know and i don't know the godfather mario puzo it's a great novel and it's a great movie but i I sometimes people think think people get this warped idea about the underworld from it oh these are very you know noble men living by their own code and i'm thinking well Picture yourself in the shoes of the shopkeeper who's being told this is a nice place. It'd be too bad if something happened to it. Yeah. Or picture yourself as the butcher. You've got your hand on the cutting board and someone's got an axe over your wrist saying you better pay up. Yeah. Everybody kind of puts themselves in the Don Corleone role. They don't put themselves in the position of the poor sucker that's about to get worked over. So I think Road to Perdition was – it was a good film, but it wasn't a great film. See, it wasn't that, a great. Gra- it was a great graphic novel, though. Well, the thing, the two things is like I, I have to say in defense of Road to Perdition is that my family was in Chicago, mm-hmm. and I think it was my father's uncle who was um, the the driver for the mayor at the time. Okay. So of course it's like the stories that it's like Bill Thompson. I, yeah, I think so. Okay. I think uh, Mayor Thompson. He was his limo driver, and he would tell my father these stories. And of course, my father w- told me some of the stories. Mm-hmm. And some of the stories is like I don't think you really want to tell your five year old kid about how somebody had <laughs> had gotten whacked in the back alley because they right. mouthed off to the mayor. But uh, I, I look at Road to Perdition not so much as just a movie but as like a, my family album mm-hmm. from that period. So that's why I'm biased towards it, and that's okay. why I love it so much. But it's like uh, the, your, your other arguments, I, I, can, I can see your point. I yeah. certainly do. I, I guess because I really got into the pulps and then the old film noir films, I really look for that hard-boiled edge. Yeah. And I, like I said, The Godfather is a great novel and it's a great movie, but I don't think Road to Perdition – I think even The Godfather is pretty hard-boiled though. You know, it has its very stylish moments, but it's got its very brutal moments. I don't think Mario Puzo or uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Yes, I don't think they lose sight of the fact that, that these guys can be very brutal and very sadistic. And, yeah. and and I think they got across too. Don Corleone was a very old man, so he had become kind of worldly and sophisticated. But when they tell the story, you know, I'm making you an offer you can't refuse. They kind of keep in mind. When he was much younger, he was not a nice, noble guy, you know? Yeah. And uh, to me, that uh, one fellow I know, an author, C.J. Henderson, says that's the greatest gift that the pulps gave us, hard-boiled fiction. Yeah. And when you lose that hard-boiled edge, you, know, you start to lose me. All right, so Rich, you and I were in the middle of a conversation here, and we were so rudely interrupted by... Well, not rudely. Not rudely interrupted. Um, we just paused it, but we were in a heated discussion about uh, Hammett, uh, Road to Perdition, and uh, yeah. the other one. 
Yeah, and I was about to just about Miller's to, Crossing. Yeah. Miller's Crossing, all of my favorite films. The Rocketeer. I was going to bring up the Rocketeer. And I wanted to know what you thought about the Rocketeer and the Disney movie that they made, like back in '91. I like the graphic novel. I met Dave Stevens once, and he signed it for me. Yeah, you know, he had a he wrote Two Rich Happy Landings, Dave Stevens, and actually did a little sketch of the Rocketeer in it, the, just the helmet. Yeah. And I liked the graphic novel, but to be perfectly honest with you, this was one case where I actually liked the movie a little better than the graphic novel. Yeah. He had these homages to Betty Page. Yes. Which they kind of had to change the character a little because it was a Disney film. Jenny. Yes, Jenny. Yeah. And uh, instead of a character who may or may not have been Doc Savage, they made it Howard Hughes, which to my mind was just fine. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a problem with that at all. What was it? Was it the first real movie that Jennifer Connelly was in that wasn't like a like a teen angst film back in the... I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I never really knew Jennifer Connelly until she was in The Rocketeer, so... Yeah. You know. But, hey, what a what a way to make your splash on the big screen. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I remember it being... Uh, people trying to sell it as like the next Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it just didn't really sort of take off. Yeah. I remember... A few people watching it saying they liked it, but there was something about Joe Johnston's direction that I think kept it from sort of flying off the screen the way Raiders does. Yeah. But then again, it seems like everyone was so preoccupied back then with creating the next Raiders of the Lost Ark that they kept falling flat on their face. They should have been just concerned about making their own movie. Just make a good movie. That's Because you I saw the about. same thing happen again ten years later with Batman. Suddenly everybody wanted to have the next Batman. Yep. And we got a string of pretty cheesy comic book type films. So, yeah. So, out of, out of all the pulps, which is your favorite? I'm not really sure if we covered this territory again, but why not? Mm, do it again? I like Dashiell Hammett. I like Black Mask. Uh, can't really afford them. Yep. A friend of mine was saying it'd be cheaper to take up a cocaine habit than to collect <laughs> Black Mask. But, uh,. I've always liked The Shadow. Uh, I like The Spider. I like Doc Savage. I discovered The Shadow first, Doc Savage second, and The Spider third. And while I find The Spider a little more readable, Norvell Page's prose is very, very vivid. Mm-hmm. Uh, his plots don't really hold together very well because he'll he'll come to a point in the story where he just wants to go for this emotional, dramatic moment. And Walter Gibson because he's writing mysteries with the shadow, tends to be a little more cool and a little more cerebral. And sometimes it's a little too cool and a little too cerebral. Because he was a former newspaper man, he seems a little detached from the prose. It's like he's describing a bunch of people playing chess, whereas when Norvell Page describes the spider in a heated gunfight with someone, you know, you, you know, you, you hear the bullets whizzing past you and, you know, maybe as they ricochet off brick walls, you know, maybe a little piece of the chipped brick hits him in the face. and Yeah. Just very vivid prose. Uh, doesn't care much for plotting. Gibson, very concerned with plot. But that kind of keeps things very subdued. And Doc Savage is somewhere in the middle. I, I like the characters, but I don't particularly like reading their stories as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. I, I never thought I would go through that phase, but it is a phase where you go back and read the stuff you started with and realize, oh, maybe I've outgrown some of this. Yeah. Do you feel as if Doc Savage has really never been given his due on the, on, the, on the silver screen? Yeah. Well, I liked Ron Eli as Doc Savage, but I didn't particularly care for the rest of the film, so no, he hasn't gotten his due on the silver screen. Do you think that they could do um, a 
Batman Returns or Batman Begins style uh, treatment of Doc Savage. Do you think Doc Savage would work in the uh, in the 21st century? He'd work. I'd, I'd like to see the movie kept in the 30s and yeah. the 40s, although some people seem to think that's the kiss of death. But Why is that? Why, why do people seem to think that movies that, that take place in the 30s and 40s is the kiss of death? I don't know, because it just seems like as soon as people see a period piece, they... Maybe today's audiences just don't accept it, although it baffles me because the the movie everyone's trying to imitate, Raiders of the Lost Ark, was mm-hmm. one of the biggest hits of all time. Exactly. And then you go back a little further and there's Chinatown. Yeah. With Jack Nicholson. That was a successful film as far as I know. Yeah. Um, the Sting, very big success. You know what? I, I think it won an award. I can't, yes. It starts with an O. I can't... Um Academy Award. Ozzy? Uh, 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 yeah, I think that's it. They won an Ozzy. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I have the soundtrack to that. As a matter of fact, that was the first motion picture I saw in the movie theater. Mm. Um, uh, I say, I, I, I look at these uh, these period films, and it's like they are just so um, absorbing. Mm-hmm. And it's like I can't get enough of them. Like uh, last year at this time, I had the swine flu. Mm-hmm. And it's like I just like went through all of my favorite uh, favorite films, mm-hmm. including Miller's Crossing. Right. And it was like uh, we actually had them in a cardboard box upstairs away from the kids because like, ooh, they're bad, you right. know, especially Miller's Crossing. I mean, the thing is, you do have Bernie Birnbaum, like you were talking earlier, right. you know, you know, where, where is your heart? Where is your <laughs> right. heart? Look in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Look at your heart. You're going to shoot me like some dumb animal. It's like, yeah, right. cowardly lion. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh uh, the the Aviator, mm-hmm. I mean that was another great film, and it's like I learned things about uh, Howard Hughes that I, I yeah. hadn't known, and it's like there. I mean there are some films that do fall flat. You look at um, uh, Amelia, mm-hmm. that should have been just such a, a much better film, right. and I, I don't think it was the the, the period that uh, that was the kiss of death. I think it was Hilary Swank's performance. Yeah, but I think sometimes too maybe the period, if you can set the story in the period and make good use of the time, that's great. But some films, I think, start to wax nostalgic a little too much. Yeah. Maybe that was one of the problems with The Rocketeer. You know, it seemed like uh, a little romp through the 30s. And sometimes you see films that now take place in the 60s and 70s, and some stories arise from that period where others are almost like little homages to the period. Oh, let's all remember the 60s and 70s together, and... Sometimes I don't know if those films do well or not, but I think when you get too caught up in the you know, frivolity of the period, right? Let's use all the slang, not because it comes naturally, but let's just throw slang let's out there to have, remind people that it's the 1930s. Yeah, let, let's let's just take a working vacation in the 30s, right? And it was just like um, the more I think about it, there are a lot of like period films that sort of have that born on date on them, right? Whereas there like there are period films from the 90s that mm. it's like it's supposed to be the 30s, but it, it still feels like the 90s, and it feels like people running around. And I think if you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know Indiana Jones, those characters. They all have jobs to do. They all have tasks to do, and they're very determined, and they're going through this adventure because yep. it's something they have to do. And you get the impression they're not reflecting – they're not constantly reminding themselves it's 1936. Yep. But some of the films – and I got the impression a couple of the Indiana Jones sequels were doing that. They seemed hell-bent on reminding us it's the 1930s. And, yep. Um, I think the weakness of the film uh, of The Shadow with Alec Baldwin, there were a number of weaknesses, but yeah. 
as soon as you say the 1930s, suddenly everything is Art Deco stylized. And I think, well, in maybe some of the wealthiest places, it's going to be very Art Deco-y. But you look at the cars driving around, and right. I see a lot of cars from 1936 and 35. And I think, well, what are you saying? Back in the 1930s, there were no cars from the 1920s? Yeah, everybody has a brand new car, which right. is not true of the Great Depression. I'm sorry. There were people running around in Model Ts. Right. Well, that's another thing. Uh, somebody said they're... Well, also a lot like the old shadow radio dramas and sometimes the pulps. You didn't see a lot of poor people. Yeah. Uh, it tended to be sort of an upscale kind of crime. And that's the thing about the shadow movie that bothers me. Yeah, if it's 1937, they're trying to find all vehicles within a year or two of that era. But a lot of people in the 1920s, you know, are in, that is in the 1930s, were driving cars that were 10 and 15 yeah. years old. And. I realize it's tough to come across a car from that period that's not owned by a collector. Yeah. And they probably don't want you to dirty it up or anything, but they all look brand new, too. Yeah, that, that is that is true. And yeah, I and can't I, imagine that with today's digital technology, you can take a brand new, clean-looking car and you can you can mess it up a little, sure, can't you? put a you? few dents in it. I mean, it's Manhattan, you know? Yeah, Especially exactly. if you're driving around in Brooklyn, you know? Yeah. My car looks okay, but I had to drive through Brooklyn a couple months ago, and frankly, I... By the time I was done, I felt like I was a bomber pilot trying to evade, you know, doors popping open in front of you, and then you'd see a pothole in your path. And yeah. A month ago, I drove my brand new Ford Flex through uh, Manhattan, and it's like, when, you know, it's like a, I had washed it like a day before, and there was this gray film over my white Flex. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That's cool. Yeah. You know, that lo- it looked like it actually went through something, and it right. was just. Uh, but uh, I mean, the, the the period films that it's like I really like is the ones that that that, that really get into it. You yeah. know? And it's like it's like you know, there are a lot of things about that area era that there's there's no way to to polish the sneaker. It right. was there were awful, dreadful things about the '30s. Right. And it's like if you leave that out, mm-hmm. it's not the '30s. Right. It's about it's about r- rich people reminiscing about other rich people who happened to live in that era. Or it's people talking about the good old days. And uh, I remember seeing a book. I can't remember the name of the author, but it said the good old days. And the subtitle was They Were Terrible. They Were Terrible, too. Because, you know, again, it seems like with the passage of time, you you wax nostalgic on all the wonderful things about the 30s. But you start to overlook the fact that there were guys on street corners with signs that will work for food. And Yeah. Um, but, you know. Maybe that's what happens as people get older. I don't know. But that's that's what I want to see. I want to see some grit in the yeah. movie. Indiana Jones, again, to, just to point to Raiders, yep. he has that line that he says to Marion Ravenwood. It's not the year. It's, it's the mileage. Yep. And in the shadow, uh, although some of the scenes were appropriately spooky and dark, they, it didn't seem like there was a lot of mileage. Was, His automatics were nice and polished. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. And it was uh, – um, the thing is, is like they weren't afraid to show you the dirt right. in Raiders, and they weren't afraid to show you the dirt in Miller's Crossing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, uh, Bernie Birnbaum uh, uh, just right. kind of keep getting back to the scene. I mean, it's like he had some serious sweat stains yeah. on right. that shirt because it's like, I mean, look, he thought he was going to die out right. in the middle of the woods like a like an animal. And also, uh, the automobiles sometimes they'll scuff the tires because like. I think with the shadow, they it was so stylized, it just didn't look like a lot of these vehicles yeah. or radios or whatnot had actually been used. It looked like they had been prepared for a movie. Yeah, and, and it was all perfectly well lit. Yes. You know, there's nothing wrong with harsh, dark shadows. Mm-hmm. 
literally and figuratively because right. that's such a great franchise in itself. But we won't get into that right now. So, I mean, do, um, do you think the period for really great period films is over, or are we just going through a dry spell? Because I, I was so disappointed with Amelia. I don't know. I think we're maybe we've just gone through a dry spell. But I mean, Hollywood goes in cycles, right? You know, sooner or later, someone will do a period piece and. Then everyone will want to jump on the bandwagon with a period piece, and they'll get it wrong. And yeah. after a few years, the it'll go away, and then it'll come back. Yeah. yeah. Quickly, what are your thoughts on remakes? I don't know. I, I I remember hearing that. I remember hearing about a Planet of the Apes remake, the one they did with Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. And my first reaction was, well, why bother remaking Planet of the Apes? But then I thought, well, wait a minute now. The movie Planet of the Apes differed quite a bit from the novel Planet yep. of the Apes. Yep. So, you know, maybe there is a reason to remake it. I don't know. If somebody said, let's do another remake of Maltese Falcon, well, it's tough to beat the Bogart film, but, I mean, they did three movies. The Bogart film was the third. Yeah. Because a lot of people forget there was a film called The Maltese Falcon with uh, Beb Daniels yep. and Ricardo Cortez, and then... Double Metal Lady. Satan Metal Lady, Satan yes. Metal which Lady. I can see they were trying to capitalize on the popularity of the Thin Man. They made the Maltese Falcon more like a screwball comedy. Yeah, which it's not. Right. And then 10 years after the first one, they made the Bogart film. And I'm thinking, well, I could see making another Maltese Falcon if you brought in elements that John Huston left out. Um, there's, you know, Spade going to speak to his attorney. I mean, when yeah. you think... When he says to Bridget O'Shaughnessy, give me all your money. Yeah. And then, you know, oh, I had to keep something to live on. He says, got any furs, jewelry, off to hock them. A friend of mine read the, saw the movie and thought he wanted her money so that she didn't have any money to run away with. Right. But then he takes her money and goes to see his attorney in the novel, Sid Wise. Yep. Pays him some money, says, and and he's got that line that's in the film, what am you know, I may have to tell a coroner and a district attorney to go to blazes. What will it cost to be on the safe side? And as I recall, Sid Wise doesn't just say this is his fee, but he's saying, if you give me this much, he's. it sounds like he's starting to spread some graft around. <laughs> craft. You know, yeah. like maybe he's going to bribe a few cops or something yeah. to keep off Spade's back. You like audiobooks, I can assume. Yes. Have you listened to Scott Brick reading Spade and Archer? No. Oh, it it is it is a real treat for anybody who loves Dashiell Hammett and the way that he does the voices is absolutely totally phenomenal and the way that the, like, they go into the background mm-hmm. of whereas um, uh, Spade and his lawyer they used to actually share the same secretary right and um, and it's like they get through that whole background it's like how how they knew each other mm-hmm. and the thing is like if if you look at the um, the Maltese Falcon. It looks like it just. Um, it already starts a couple scenes in already, right. and it doesn't do everything. Is just um, they just tell everything through dialogue, whereas right. it's like it's like as if you hey you should already know this. Mm-hmm. That's what I that's what I just loved about it. And you if you can just get a hold of that Spade and Archer, okay, read by Scott Brick. It really is a treat. It's lengthy, but it is worth it. Maybe I'll investigate it. Although. I did hear a clip of uh, the recent audio book of Maltese Falcon, but it's got several cast members reading from it, and Michael Madsen plays Sam Spade. Mm-hmm. Michael Madsen, who you may or may not know from the movie Reservoir Dogs, he plays Mr. Blonde. Uh-huh. 
And uh, his voice is quite good as Sam Spades. He's very good in the audio. He acts well, and something yeah. about his voice is just a little bit gravelly, and it seems to go very well with Sam Spade. And it, yeah, yeah, good pairing. Yeah, just you know, just have a couple extra cup of coffee and uh, cigarettes, and stay up all night. And anybody <laughs> can do a good Bogart impression. Well, that's the nice thing, though. He he was probably chosen because he's conveying that Bogart uh, dynamic, but he's reading it like Michael Madsen, so. He's reading it like Sam Spade. It doesn't sound like he's trying to be Humphrey Bogart, yeah. which is good. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, it's uh, like Richard Lehman, a Hammett biographer, has said many, many times. People ask him, what do you think about the movie? And he said, it's a wonderful movie, but it ain't the novel. Right. There's still a lot of stuff in that novel that's not in that Bogart film. Yeah, there's a lot of things that they had to leave out. Yeah. You know, and there's plenty of that stuff in Spade and Archer. Right, and some of it is just left out for uh, for time's sake. Yeah, you can, you just cannot, unless you're going to do a miniseries, which they never even thought of doing back then. Well, the one scene that I really liked is when Bridget O'Shaughnessy calls him for help, and he goes out there, and I, I'll give this much away if you haven't read or seen it. Um, him and the cab driver stake out this house for like a half hour, an hour, and then realize it's empty. They get the landlord, he lets him in, he says, oh, nobody's been here, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. That we've been set up well in the movie he gets the address he goes out to the cab he says wait here to the driver and he walks about half a block and realizes it's an empty lot yep waves him up and the cab driver says bum steer mr spade yep let's get to a phone so it works out very well and i think they streamlined that pretty well it is we'll see yeah and they're also talking about doing a uh, johnny depp is thinking about doing a remake of the thin man hmm it's, it's like it's like doing a remake of Citizen Kane. Well, who's who's going to direct it? Tim Burton. Um, I don't like the idea of Tim Burton directing the. Thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You're going to have like that as people get drunk, they like morph into strange little funky characters yeah, from no, Beetlejuice. No, 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 no. no, there's some things that you just cannot touch. Well, if if he could di- if he could direct it kind of like Ed Wood, that might work. But I uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know if the Thin Man needs to be redone. Maybe that's one you should leave alone. Yeah. Let's just uh, quickly just wrap up this this whole fest, this uh, Pulp Adventure Fest. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the one thing that everybody had to see here? Mm, that's difficult to say. There's so many different pulp magazines that were published, so many different genres. Although, for me, it was the corner with Steranko's little display. I keep trying to talk to him. He, he's holding court. He's got people surrounded. He's surrounded. I know. He's always holding court, it seems. But you'll catch up to him. But... Uh, He's really become sort of a part of the pulp community, and you know he's always done good stuff. I mean, he wrote that uh, massive work, The History of the Comics 1 and 2, way back when comic book and pulp research was really just limited to fanzines. Yeah. And you read a lot of fanzines from that period, and you can see there's a lot of people speculating, maybe the reason this author did this is because blah, blah, blah. And Steranko was the first one to really put something down solidify something because a number of these people he actually worked with yeah or met as he worked his way through the comic book industry first with like nick fury agent of shield yeah and then with his interest in the pulps he eventually wound up painting the shadow and moving on to a lot of other projects yeah but and in fact most recently he was painting uh covers for uh the spider when bane books revived it so for me the the highlight of the show was steranko but there's so many other things to see. I don't really, I can't really point anything out. My my advice is if you're new to pulps, just start looking around. I mean, every now and then at a, one of the pulp shows, there was a young fellow 
who was brand new there, and he was just standing there not knowing what to do. Yep. And a friend of mine said, see this box here? Just step up and start looking through it. Why? Well, because it's there. And don't don't be afraid to just dive in. I mean, if you just like, you don't have to worry about what you're buying or looking for, yeah. just start looking at covers and you'll probably figure out what you're interested in that way. Yeah. And the covers is just absolutely, I mean, the covers to a lot of these pulps it is, it's either mind bending or mm. beautiful works of art or both. Right. Those are the best. Well, Stan Lee said, uh, a, co- a cover is a, basically a four color advertisement for a book or magazine or comic. Yeah. I think the pulps really drive that lesson home very well. Yeah, it is. It is. So, Rich, are we going to do this again next year? Yeah, I'll be here at November 5, 2011. That's it. Yeah. Well, well I, I'll I, definitely. I've done a spring one, but it won't be next year. But, you know, maybe yeah. in 2012. But the next one is going to be November 5. It's always the first Saturday in November. Yeah, there's just something about vintage in autumn. Yeah. That, that autumnal just, quality. <laughs> it is, it is. And also it's that last hurrah before the holiday, and we have to neglect pulps for, you know, family oh, and holidays, yeah. Family and holidays. Well, hey, you know, if they gave us pulps, that'd be great. <laughs> but, oh, but I love them. I, hey, I have a wife who loves vintage. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. She doesn't have a sister. Yeah. Oh. Right. <laughs> Sorry, pal. Okay, well, if your marriage ever dissolves, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? I think I think she has a cousin or two. <laughs> okay, I'll try that. But yeah, no, it's like, uh, yeah. So I'm just, uh, I, I am hours overdue. But to meet Storanko, I will, I will definitely. <sighs> Let's try and corral him. We'll, we'll, we'll corral him. Thanks, right. thanks a lot, Rich. Thanks. Well, I didn't get a chance to talk with Jim Storanko for this bunch of podcasts, but I did have the honor to talk with him for a few minutes at his table. Maybe next time, when he's in the Northeast, we can get him behind one of our microphones. I did get to record a lot of other great interviews, which I will air in the near future. Special thanks to Rich Harvey, whose hospitality and generosity I will never be able to repay. You have to check out Rich's Facebook page. Just do a search of Pulp Adventure Con, and be sure to click the like button. Also, for those of us who live in the Northeast, be sure to make plans to be there at his next event in New Jersey in November 2011. And also be prepared to meet some other great retrocentrics and vintage aficionados and buy some publications that were printed during the golden era of adventure stories and pulp publications. Until next time, this is Eric Reiner-Kingfisk reminding you to keep your chins up and your fedoras on. <laughs>